0: Thanks for coming to church this morning. My name's Matt. If I haven't met you before, it's great that you could be with us. As Brian mentioned, we've finished up a, a series that we've been preaching through this whole year and we're, uh, we've got a couple of one-offs and we're kicking off in the Psalms as we begin in January. And this morning we're going to be looking at the topic of regeneration. So if you've got a Bible, uh, please open it up to Ezekiel chapter 36. If you don't have one, we'd love to give you one. We've got some Bibles available on our Connect desk, our welcome desk, so feel free to head there and grab one and keep it. It's our gift to you if you would like to keep that Bible. But go to Ezekiel 36 this morning. We're going to be reading uh, about God's promise to give us a new heart and uh, we'll be preaching from this on the topic of regeneration. I'm going to pray for us as we come before God in His Word and ask that He would open our hearts to hear what He would have to say to us this morning. So join me as I pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. You're a God who is not silent. And Father, we admit this morning that were it not for the work of your Spirit in our hearts, this would just not make any sense to us. So we thank you for the illuminating presence of your Spirit in our lives who opens blind eyes to the truth. We thank you, Father, for your initiative in revealing yourself to us. In the person of Jesus, by the power of your Spirit. And so we pray this morning, Father, speak to us. Help us see what you have done in us and through us, by your Spirit. Transform us. Send us out of here, radically transformed people, by the gospel, by the power of your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Ezekiel 36, we're going to start at verse 24. We're just going to look at six or so verses this morning. So, Ezekiel thirty six twenty four says this. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel. I will take you out from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle you with water and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. You know, in the uh, in mid-1970s, a lady by the name of Claire Sylvia was one of the very first people to undergo a full heart and lung transplant. Obviously, there was a lot of uh, media fuss around this event. It was a historic moment in terms of the progress of medicine. And so uh, the doctors were interviewed. And at one of the post-surgery interviews, a reporter said to this lady, Claire Sylvia, how do you feel after the surgery? And she said, you know what, I'm dying for a beer. And she thought, hang on a sec, I don't even like beer, I don't even drink beer, where did that come from? And in the weeks and months to come, this happened time and time again for her. She realised she had this newfound craving for green capsicum and KFC chicken nuggets when she'd never had those cravings or desires before. And so she decided she would do some research and she found that the the person who had donated her, not, not willingly, they died, but had donated her lungs and her new heart, was a young 18-year-old male who had, who had died in a motorcycle accident, who just so happened to love beer, green capsicum and KFC chicken nuggets. And so she went on to write a book about this experience called A Change of Heart. Now, I'm not too sure where we're at in terms of medical science and, and our understanding of heart transplants and how that might change our mind. But medicine generally says that 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 shouldn't happen. When you get a new heart, you don't get a new brain. It shouldn't change who you are. But I remember I studied exercise science at university, and I remember our lecturers telling a story of a guy who was morbidly obese and had heart failure, had to have a heart transplant, got a heart transplant, and all of a sudden had this urge to run and, and just got really fit. And it turned out his... Um, donor was a triathlete who had died. And, and, and so whilst medical science can't really put um, you know, research to this, it's an experience that people have said has happened to them. They've been given a new heart and all of a sudden along with this new heart comes all of these new desires along with it. And this morning as we look at Ezekiel chapter 36, we're going to see that as God performs spiritual heart surgery on his people... Along with it will come all of these new desires and new affections. The question I want to try and answer this morning is this. Can you obey God? Can you live for His glory without Him first moving you by His Spirit to do that? And my hope and aim this morning is that you would see that we are in desperate need of spiritual awakening, of the work of God in our hearts to radically transform us, to remove a heart of stone and replace it. With a heart of flesh, this um, this promise of a new heart that we read of in Ezekiel thirty-six is just one of a whole bunch of promises that are associated with what's called the new covenant. in In the Bible, there are two covenants or two promises. There is the old promise, and there is the new promise. And this promise about a new heart is part of a whole heap of promises that God makes that are part of the new covenant. It's one, but it's a very central, important one. And we're going to focus on it this morning. As with every saving act of God, it's His initiative. You'll notice that at least nine times in those six verses, the phrase, I will, pops up. You notice it there. It says, I will take you out of the countries, of the nations. I will gather you in. I will sprinkle you with water. I will cleanse you from impurities. I will give you a new heart. I will remove that heart of stone. I will put in you a heart of flesh. I will give you my spirit. I will save you from your uncleanness. It's all about God and what He is doing from beginning to end. It's God, God, God. His work. His initiative. His initiative the cool thing about this is that the very thing that God requires of people, that we would worship Him from the heart, I mean, that, that's what He says isn't it? in De- Deuteronomy 6, right? The, the commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. So the thing that God requires of people is the very thing that He gives a new heart. This uh, new heart is initiated by... Spiritual heart surgery, as I've called it. And you'll see that in verse 26. He says there, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. A new heart that brings new desires and new affections and and a new will and a new mind. A new spirit that brings a, a new attitude and a new impulse and a new drive and a new purpose in life. But the question is, why do we need a new heart? What was wrong with the old one that we originally had? And the problem is that it was dead. It was a heart of stone. You see that there in the second half of verse 26. It says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove the heart of stone. It's a hard heart. And if you just look at how God describes the heart as we read through the Old Testament, you'll see things like in Genesis 6 verse 5, God says... Every inclination of the heart was only evil all the time. It's not a wonderful picture of the the human heart, is it? Every inclination of our hearts is only evil all the time. Wicked, broken, depraved, and bent. Or a a verse like Isaiah 29, 13, where God says, You know what, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are just far from me. Or in Zechariah verse 7, sorry, chapter 7, verse 12, where he says, these people, their hearts are hard. They've hardened their hearts as hard like flint. And flint is a particularly hard stone, not like sandstone that crumbles, but a very hard stone that was used for the sharpening of, of tools and weapons. God says these people have, have hardened their hearts. They're calloused. The problem with the heart is that it's hard. It's callous towards God. It's far from Him. By this stage, by the time we get to Ezekiel 36, Israel has demonstrated time and time and time again that they need God to transform them from the inside out. They need a new heart. And it's been idols in their life that have been the hardening agent of their hearts. And so God says, I will come and I will remove that heart of stone and I will replace it with a heart of flesh. It's, a, it's, a, it's an image. It's an illustration. And he says, this is what the heart looks like. Like stone. This is, this is the heart of my people. It's hard. It's, I mean, this is not soft. It's not malleable. It's not, it's not um, soft to the word of God. It's stubborn. It's rebellious. It's insensitive. And God says, I'm going to take this out. And I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. Now, if you were on Facebook this morning and now... Anchor group, you will have noticed I sent out, please, someone buy me a cow's heart before church this morning because it will make for a great illustration. I unfortunately don't have a cow's heart, but it's very different. It's soft, it's spongy, it's malleable, it's sensitive. And and this is a, a picture. God is giving us a picture of what He is doing inside of us, taking out the hard heart and replacing it with a heart that is sensitive and alive to Him by His Spirit. The new promise of God, the new covenant, does not work without the work of God pouring His Spirit into our hearts and regenerating us. You would be exactly like everyone else in Israel, stubborn, stiff-necked and hard-hearted, were it not for the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The new covenant is dependent on God's promise to regenerate us, to make us new, to give us the Spirit of And that's why he says the Spirit will come. Have a look there in verse 27. And I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Another translation says I will move you to obey me. I will inspire you to obey me. This new heart occurs not when we begin to fix it up, But when God completely removes that heart of stone by pouring His Spirit into us. And when the Holy Spirit comes into a person, that's the moment that a person is completely made new, transformed. That is that moment. The Spirit of God cannot take up residence inside of a person without completely changing them. We're very familiar with uh, the, the line of theology that says, well, you can't be a Christian without the Spirit of God. You cannot be a Christian unless you have God's Spirit. And we would say, yes, that's true. But it's equally true that you cannot be the same with the Spirit of God. Once God's Spirit comes inside of you, He radically transforms us from the inside out. We cannot be the same. It is impossible for you to be a Christian and be the same person that you used to be. So the Holy Spirit, He's a bit like the personal trainer of the heart. Maybe, sort of. But He moves us. And he makes us love and obey God out of a sense of desire. We want to do this. The things that we previously didn't want to do, we don't want to do. And the things that we didn't want to do, we now do want to do. Duty becomes desire when God changes our hearts. Let me give you an example of this. I've got a friend of mine, his name is Grant. And um, he was not interested in the things of God at all. In fact, I managed to get a copy of his Year 12 Studies of Religion report. and I think it's on the screen here. You'll see his mark was seven. The average Class average was 25, so he hasn't done so well. But interestingly, the comments there are important. Grant's exam result is an accurate indication of the amount of effort he has put into this subject. In other words, he has no interest in studies of religion. He's got no interest in the things of God. And as a young man, Grant lived a very wild lifestyle. By the age 21, he decided that he wanted to join an outlaw motorcycle gang. All of his family was a part of this gang, and so he decided, I'm going to get involved with this gang. And he would have if it were not for God intervening. And God did two things. The first thing God did was the cousin he was supposed to meet up for the interview to get into the gang. His cousin got arrested and thrown in jail for five years. The second thing that God did was he poured his spirit into Grant's heart but the crazy thing with gran is he didn't realize he didn't realize he'd become a christian all he knew was that his affections and desires had changed he was um out partying with his mates and as they would do they would pick up girls and one night stands and and he had this girl throw him throw herself at him one night and he had no desire to sleep with her he was like what is happening she's hot what what is happening to me he went home and he had this dog that he hated and all of a sudden he loved his dog he was like I hate this dog. Why do I love... What is happening to me? And he went to a a Christian friend of his and he told his friend what had happened. And he said, I think you've become a Christian. He's like, A Christian? He'd been reading the Bible and God had radically transformed his life. And it wasn't until he went to church he realized that God had been changing him. Transforming his desires from the inside out. I remember the moment that it happened to me. It was about September, October of 1996 in the church car park at my church in West Pennant Hills. After hearing a sermon on Ephesians chapter 2, I remember being convicted that God was offering me this gift of grace that I was just throwing back in His face. I first understood the gospel when I was much younger, in year 8. And it took me three and a half years to really come under the conviction of God. And it wasn't until that moment, September, October, where God poured His Spirit out in my heart and changed my desires for Him because I knew the truth. I just didn't desire God at all. I didn't want to live His way. I mean, I liked the idea of being forgiven from your sins because I personally felt convicted of sin. I just didn't like the idea that God called the shots in my life. And then all of a sudden, September of 1996, God gave me new affections and new desires as He changed my heart, made me new. God transforms people from the inside out. I mean how how else can you explain the crazy transformation that you see in people's lives. One moment a person is greedy and ripping people off. They're hungry for money and then they get saved. They're in church. They want to tithe. They want to give. They want to bless the missionaries. They want to build the work of the church. How do you explain that kind of a change just like that? How do you explain the change of someone who's been a, a gossip and a slander and just tearing people down and then all of a sudden they want to build up and encourage and nurture faith in people? How do you explain the types of changes that we see in people's lives time and time and time again apart from the work of the Spirit of God, transforming people's hearts? And what that means is that God is working the miracle of new birth in people and this church is full of miracles because it is a miracle. That's what it is. God taking someone who was dead and making them alive is an absolute miracle and this church is full of miracles people have been radically transformed by God but you know what not not every single evil desire disappears instantly does it we still wrestle with sin we still wrestle with evil desires that we have and so it's important for us to kind of locate ourselves in God's big picture plan God has a plan that he's been working since Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 22 and The Spirit of God gets poured out in these moments and in different times and in different ways. And so it's important for us to understand where we fit in this story. And so I've got a diagram up here that's hopefully going to help you see that. So this is how it works. Before uh, sin had come into the picture, pre the fall, Adam and Eve, they had the ability to choose to obey God or disobey God. To sin. Or not to sin, they had that ability, that choice to do that. Once sin came into the picture, humanity was fallen, hearts were broken, and and people were turned away from God. They they still had the ability to choose to sin, but they just hadn't this ability to obey God like He designed Adam and Eve to do. And I know that this is slightly reductionistic, so work with me on this. Once once the Spirit of God comes into the picture, people will still sin but they have a newfound ability to obey God in a way that Israel could never without the Spirit of God. But then, when Jesus returns and ushers in his kingdom, people will never sin, and we will obey God in perfect righteousness for all eternity. And so we're in that that second last category there, where we will still sin, but yet we've got the Spirit of God poured out in our hearts. We have this ability, this new ability To walk in holiness and obedience to God like Israel was never able to do. So the new heart is not perfect yet. We don't expect perfection, but what we do expect is progress in Christ-likeness and godliness. We can be loyal to Jesus. This is um, some new heart that Ezekiel talks of. Jesus picks up very similar language in John chapter 3 when he has an encounter with a guy, a teacher of the law called Nicodemus. And this is what it says. John chapter 3, uh, starting at verse 3, says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can A man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from. Or where it goes so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you should have known this. Don't marvel at this like it's something new. Why should Nicodemus have known what Jesus was talking about here? He's a teacher of the law, he's an expert of the law and he should have read Ezekiel 36. He should have known the promises of God that God says, "I will wash you I will wash you with water Ezekiel 36:25 He says I will pour my spirit on you Ezekiel 36:27 Nicodemus should have known that this was going to be the case What Ezekiel calls the new birth Jesus calls sorry what Ezekiel calls a new heart Jesus calls being born again new birth new life This is what theologians call regeneration that we've been made new The question is, what are the implications of this understanding of the work of God in our lives? And I want to suggest three to you. There are heaps of them. We don't have time to go through all of them, but I want to suggest three implications of this idea of regeneration, of God giving us a new heart. The first is this. Christianity is about transformation and not about reformation. What I mean is this. When you become a Christian, it's not that a bad person becomes a good person. That's not... The change that happens when someone becomes a Christian. I was oh, once bad and now I'm a good person. And that, that's not what happens. What happens is someone is dead and they're made alive. Someone has a heart of stone that is dead and cold towards God and he gives them a heart of flesh that loves him. Christianity is not about behavior modification. We are people that are capable of improving ourselves. We can do that. We can take courses. We can, we can improve who we are but we cannot transform ourselves. We cannot deal with that hard, stubborn, broken heart towards God. We need God to act and transform us radically. I'll give you an example of that. We can take, say for example, an anger management class to learn how to deal with our our anger. An anger management class can teach us skills about how to deal when someone ticks us off and how do we suppress that and how do we you know, deviate that anger and send it in another direction. But you know what an anger management class can't do? It it can't deal with the heart from where that anger springs and bursts out. We can suppress it, but we can't transform it. Now, to be fair, some people with the Spirit of God still need to go to anger management classes. But God's Spirit radically transforms us from the inside out. A dead person cannot bring themselves back to life. A child contributes nothing to their birth. In the same way, a person who comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus is because of his work. So this is not about reformation, about making ourselves better, improving ourselves. This is about a complete transformation of the heart. Second implication of this idea of regeneration is that what it does is it means that there is a radical internalization of worship now. In the Old Covenant, worship was much more about the external, about the geographic location, about dutiful sacrifice. Now, that's not what God desired. God always desired that there would be an element of heart worship about it. It wasn't an either or, but his people had just made it dutiful. Remember, God said in Isaiah, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so God, whilst he always desired this worship, heart worship. So much of Israel's worship was just about the external acts and duties and deeds. In Hosea 6.6, God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire to be acknowledged, not just burnt offerings. God wants worshipers from the heart. And so as he pours His Spirit into us and removes that heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, it means that there is this now internalization of worship. We we see that happening in the encounter that Jesus has with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, where she comes to Jesus and has this encounter and she's a Samaritan and she says to Jesus, well, you know what? You Jews worship God in that temple and we worship God on this mountain. And and Jesus says to a woman, I tell you the truth, a time is coming where you will not worship God in a temple or on a mountain but you will worship me in spirit and truth. You will worship me in spirit. It's a radical internalization of worship. And that's why in the end, religion is so offensive to God because it's all about the externals. It's just about fixing up that stuff out there and and making sure our performance ticks all the boxes. God cares about that, but that begins here in the heart. And so there is an internalization of worship. That's the second implication. Firstly, it's not about Reformation, it's about transformation. Secondly, it's about a radical internalization of worship. And thirdly, the third implication means that we can obey God. We can do it. We've been empowered to do that. Obedience in the new covenant, under the new promises of God, is Holy Spirit-empowered obedience. The Holy Spirit gives us the power we need to live the way God wants us. To live And it means that we can have victory over, over sin in our life. It means we can expect to have that victory. Not perfection, but definitely progress. But you know, I think sometimes we can make two mistakes in this area. The first mistake is what's called sinless perfectionism. And that is when someone thinks that, at least in their reading of the Bible, that it, once someone becomes a Christian, they receive the Spirit of God, they'll never sin again. We had a guy in my previous church who... Thought like that, he um, we nicknamed him Sinless Joe. I'm not even sure if that was his real name, but he honestly thought that when he became a Christian, he he never sinned again. And the problem was he found it really hard to fellowship with other Christians because he just didn't find any other Christians when he came to our church. Our pastor Ray wasn't a Christian because once he yawned during a sermon. Pastor Bruce wasn't a Christian because on the website, Bruce had mentioned his wife and family before he mentioned Jesus. I'm sure I wasn't a Christian because I wore a t-shirt to church. I mean, no one in our church was a Christian according to Sinless Joe because he was perfect and everyone else sinned. That's a mistake. That is for the, the new creation, the new heaven where Jesus ushers in his kingdom. And so that's the first error we make. My guess is most people here don't struggle with that one. Just saying, we know each other too well. This guy lived alone. The, the second mistake, and the mistake I think we're more likely to fall into, is the mistake of pessimism about our sin. You see, we think, well, yeah, well, I I'm, no, I'm not going to be perfect until Jesus returns. So we just settle for this mediocre commitment to God, mediocre devotion, mediocre fight against sin in our lives. And what we do is we look for the, the, the standard of godliness around us and yeah, I'll yeah, I'll just do that, rather than letting the Spirit of God transform us and make us more and more like Jesus. And so we end up being pessimistic about our devotion to God. But you know, the new heart is never stale towards the work of the Spirit in transforming us. God has resourced our hearts in the fight against sin. We are not slaves to it any longer. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We have been set free. Yes, we experience that tension that Paul talks about in Romans 7 of wrestling against the flesh while we still have the Spirit. But but as the Spirit is poured out into our hearts... He transforms us and makes us progressively more and more like Jesus. So for those of you who are struggling with sin right now and feeling defeated, take heart. Because this promise means that God will move you towards Christ's likeness. His will, His work in your life is that He will make you more like Jesus. That's what the promise in Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-seven is. I will move you. To obey my commands, I will give you new desires and new affections. So, those are the three implications I think of this teaching, at least three of them. There's more. The first is that it's not about about reformation, it's about transformation. The second is there is a radical internalization of worship. And the third is now, in light of the Spirit of God, we can obey Him in a way that people of God have never been able to do before. Acts chapter 2. I was reading a book recently that talked about 10 new things that come with a new heart. And so I, I was really helpful, I was really encouraged by it. I wanted to share it with you this morning. There are 10 new things that come with a new heart. The first is a new lord. We receive a new lord when we get a new heart. No longer are we enslaved to the old idols of our heart whatever they might be. We now worship Jesus and our heart is drawn to worship him rather than the old idols, the old lords that we used to have. We get a a new Lord with a new heart. We get a new creation. You notice uh, that transformation that happens with Saul, who was once that that death-breathing persecutor of the church who ran around killing Christians and then on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, God reaches out, pursues him, pours his spirit into his heart, changes that heart of stone, makes it a heart of flesh and what does he do? He gives him a new name. He's no longer Saul. He's Paul, the preacher of the gospel. We're new creations, entirely new people and that That transformation that occurs is symbolized by Paul's new name. You are no longer Saul. You are now Paul. You're a new creation. With a new heart comes a new identity. No longer are we defined by our old identity, by those old things that defined us and made us who we are. We are now defined with a new identity, that we are God's children adopted into his family, that we're a community of faith. We have a new identity in Christ with a new heart. We have a new mind We think differently now because of a new heart. The things that we um, wanted to do that... Sorry, that's new desires. We have a new mind and we begin to think God's way now about God's things. We think differently about everything. We think differently about time, about money, about community, about people, about eternity. We think differently about everything because when we have a new heart, we have a new mind. We have new emotions. We once either hated God or at least were very indifferent to Him. And now we love God. We have this new desire to love God. We have new desires. The things that we once wanted to do, we don't want to do. And the things that we once didn't want to do, we now want to do. Because God has changed our affections for those things. We have a new community with a new heart. This was massive for me. I, I, um, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a church going home. We went to church every Sunday. I hated it. I hated church. It was lame, boring, uncool. I didn't want to be seen with my parents in the car going to church or like sit low in the back seat. I mean, I just couldn't stand church. In 1996, God did something to me, transformed my heart, and I loved church. Once you couldn't get away from church fast enough, then I was the last person, like I was locking up. I would get to every single church service that we had, every small group midweek, every training course. I did it all because God had given me a new heart. I love the people of God. We've got a new community now with a new heart. It's in Roman numerals, so I don't even know what number I'm up to. Maybe seven, V one one one. That's seven. Yep. A new is that eight? Eight, nine, ten. Yes. Number eight. We have new power with a new heart. New power. We have this Holy Spirit empowered life that once we didn't have. But now we have because God has changed our hearts and given us the Spirit. Number nine, we have new freedom. New freedom, a a freedom to walk in what God has done in our lives, a freedom to choose to obey Him when we couldn't. New freedom and new life. With a new heart comes new life. You are a new you. But what does this mean practically for us? How, How do we live this out in everyday life, as we walk out of these doors, what what does this mean for us? And I want to suggest a couple of things. And I think the first is to ask ourselves a question. Are we obeying God out of a sense of duty or out of a sense of desire? Because it is never the work of the Spirit to obey God out of a sense of duty. That's religion. That's what Israel did for all those years. Are you obeying God out of a sense of duty or out of a sense of desire. God wants you to obey Him. In fact, God wants you to want to obey Him. That's what desire is. I was a youth pastor for a number of years and been in youth ministry for about 17 years before planting Anchor Church. And over those years, I had many conversations with teenagers about the gospel and about becoming a Christian. And often when I chatted to Uh, Kids who were not church kids, hadn't come from a church background, or maybe some of the the scripture kids at Rudy Hill High School where I taught scripture. But I'd have this conversation with them about Jesus, and they would say to me, so what you're saying is when I become a Christian, I've got to stop sleeping with my girlfriend or boyfriend, I've got to stop getting drunk, I've got to stop swearing, and I've got to um, stop wagging school. And my answer would go like this. You know, it's not that you have to stop doing those things. It's that when you become a Christian, you, you, you want to do different things. I mean, you have new desires. And as I'm saying that to them, I'm thinking, this makes no sense at all to a teenage kid. I mean, without the Spirit of God opening their eyes to that truth, it's just dumb. What do you mean you don't want to sleep with your girlfriend? That's ridiculous. I remember when I was studying at uni and engaged to get married, all of my mates at uni, they knew I was a Christian. And I was talking about marriage and they were asking, why are you getting married so young? And I actually wasn't that young, but um, <clears throat> they said to me, can, can we just ask you a really blunt question? I'm like, yeah, I knew I was coming. I'm like, yeah. Like, do you guys sleep together? I'm like, no, we don't. They're like, what? How can you do that? I mean, is that hard? And my answer was, well, you know what? Yeah, I guess at times it is hard because we're natural people with natural affections and desires for each other and we love each other, but you know, in the end... This is what we want. We desire this. And they were just like, oh my goodness, you're a freak. You're an alien from another planet. It just did not make sense to them at all. But when we have the Spirit of God, we have new desires. The things that we once didn't want to do, we do. And the things that we once... The things that we once didn't want to do, we now do, and the things that we did do, we don't do, because God has completely changed our affections for Him, transformed us from the inside out. What was once a duty and a have to becomes a desire and a want to. But I guess the question is, what then do we do with myself or or for yourself if you struggle with some form of addiction or habitual sin? How do we break free from that? If this is the promise that God has given that we can expect some form of progress in Christ-likeness and and I'm stuck here spinning my wheels on this sin, just going around and around and around, what do I do with that? How can I experience this kind of freedom that you've spoken of? How can I experience this new desire? Because for for me right now, it feels like I'm just stuck in desiring sin and not God. And so let me say a couple of quick things about that. The first is sometimes I think that... um, we may have no desire to change. We may have no um, heart or willingness to do that. Maybe sometimes because we just don't have a new heart, because God hasn't removed that heart of flesh and given us a heart of stone. And so it might be for you that you need to say, God, if you need to do that kind of radical transformation in me, do it. Please remove the heart of stone. Give me a heart of flesh. Might also be that for you, the work of fighting against sin is not spirit empowered. It's all of your effort and your power and your strength to defeat this sin in your life and make war against sin. And, and it's not the work of God, that you're self-reliant and not dependent on what the Spirit is doing in transforming you. Or it might be that your motivation for this is not gospel motivation, that your motivation is somehow that, yes, if I can just deal with this one sin, then God will approve of me and, and accept me. And so maybe those are some of the reasons that we experience this Spinning of the wheels and and not experiencing this form of victory over sin in our lives. But can I say this? With this promise that God in Ezekiel 36 says, I will move you to obey my commands. I will change your affections and desires. I think that means that we can expect some progress in those areas. Now to be fair, we would never sin if it wasn't desirable. We're creatures of pleasure. If we didn't want to sin, we wouldn't sin. We do what we want And so we will always experience this wrestle between what we desire and what God desires. But as the Spirit of God comes into our lives and radically transforms us, I think we can see the trajectory of Christ-likeness, that God transforms us and makes us more and more and more like Jesus. I think we can expect that. And so my question is, are you living in the freedom of the Spirit? Are you living in the freedom of this transformation that has occurred? A new life with new desires and new obedience and new affections. Is this duty or is it desire? Maybe today you realize your need, your personal need for transformation. Be that for the first time ever or be that, again, a reminder of the gospel, a reminder of what God has done. The great news today is that in the gospel... Jesus does transform lives. There's a promise in Luke 7 that says, for those who seek, they will find. For those who knock, the door will be opened. God loves to give the Spirit to those who ask for it. And so today, maybe it's a day for a fresh start. A fresh start where you say, God, please transform me. Maybe for the first time, maybe again. Change my heart. Change my and affections. Change my desires. And our hope this week and every single week at Anchor is that as you walk through those doors and hear the Word of God about Jesus the Son and the Spirit applies that to your hearts that you will walk out of those doors radically transformed people for His glory. That's our prayer. That's what I'm going to pray for now. So please join me as I pray. As we just pause and reflect on the gospel We remember what Jesus has done for us. We're going to do that in a meal together and celebrate the Lord's Supper. I'm just going to invite you now to spend some time reflecting on your life and on what God has done and on what God is doing. Spend that time to ask that God would transform your heart for the first time or continue to transform your heart and make you more like Jesus. we celebrate together what we call the Lord's Supper. As we dip bread into grape juice and eat it, it's a reminder that Jesus has died for our sins, that he has made us new people, he has radically transformed us, he has poured out his spirit into our hearts and made us new. And so as you come forward and remember the gospel and eat this meal, do so Remembering a new heart, the heart of fle- uh, the heart of stone has gone, and the heart of flesh has been given. Father God, we thank you for the gospel, for the reminder of your transforming power and work in our lives. We thank you for your spirit, who so radically transforms us and times Father, if we're honest, we know that we Try and transform ourselves and change ourselves and our own strength and our own power, not dependent on you and your work. And so would you remind us again, Father, that this is your work. Would you remind us of the gospel that motivates that, not out of a sense of duty or approval, but out of desire and joy, knowing that we have a new identity. Father, we thank you for your work. We pray that you would continue to transform and change us by your Spirit for your glory. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus and all those who agreed said, Amen.